Hi, I'm Victor Miller. I wrote Friday the 13th, and you're listening to Genretainment. Hi, and you're listening to episode 8 of Genretainment. We're your hosts, Marks. And Julie, and we're here to give you news about our favorite genre on TV, movies, web series, and everything in between. We also have interviews. We have two this time. Uh, the first one is with Erin Way, the newest cast member of Sci-Fi Channel's Alphas. Uh, she made her first appearance on the show yesterday. Our second interview is with the New York Times best-selling author R.A. Salvatore about his Forgotten Realms books, Karen's Claw, which is available at bookstores starting today. He talks about his love of fantasy and how he created the famous fantasy character, Just. We also ask him why he killed an iconic Star Wars character in the book, Spectre Prime. Now, Wei tells us a little bit about her new character and the work it took to play a superhuman character that can actually learn any skill. And what you just heard at the beginning of our show was a snippet from the theme song for our web series, Reality on Demand. It was a song composed and performed by our friend Tishan Hardy, and you can find our web series at realityondemandseries.com. Now, before we start the, the interviews, or the first interview, uh, we do have some news hot off the virtual presses. First up, preparing to start its eighth season, some may say that the CW's Supernatural is past its prime. Well, new showrunner Jeremy Carver would actually agree, but he says he has a plan to fix that. Yes, and what he calls a semi-reboot of the series this season. Carver was with the show during its early run, but left to work on Sci-Fi's Being Human, the American version, a few years ago. He said that he wants to get back to the more straightforward tales that worked so well for Supernatural in the past. Carver told TV Line he felt the show got too buried in its own mythology. And here is a quote. Uh, the one thing that struck me while watching season seven was I felt like the show got a little bit buried under its mythology. It became a little hard to tell exactly what was going on at times. The longtime fans all deserve intricate plot, but it felt a little burdensome. Resetting our mythology was one idea that I tried to bring into the show. And Carver said we'll be meeting a more mature Winchester Brothers next year. He goes on, part of this season is realizing they didn't just spend several years together, they really matured in different ways. It's one thing to get in a car with your brother in year one, but eight years later, you've both matured and grown. You're both changing and trying to find out who you are. There's a lot of that type of exploration for these guys this year. So what do you think? Did you like the recent Leviathan story arc, or do you feel that Supernatural needs a mini-reboot? I think it needs a mini-reboot. I think that um, the last couple of years, season six seemed completely directionless, and, and then Eve was set up to be the big bad, but just was dispatched early on, and it just sort of wandered and yeah, pathless. It seemed to lose its way. <laughs> and the Leviathans, I was so excited. I thought they were going to go kind of creepy Cthulhu-like, and I, I think that the, I'm a huge Supernatural fan, but I felt like the Leviathans were just too silly to even be... They felt scary. more like Buffy the Vampire Slayer. No, Buffy actually had scarier, uh, more serious. So I don't know. I mean, I, I think that maybe... I don't it know, felt they like were, Buffy the Vampire Slayer bad guys from a one-shot episode. Yeah, before. but they stretched them out so long. <laughs> and and this is certainly one of those shows where you can't have a strong show without a strong big bad. You know, I mean, it, to be fair, it was hard to top Lucifer, Satan. But... Um, but, yeah, so I'm excited. Jeremy Carver has uh, written some really great iconic episodes. 
uh, one of the other big, one of the big favorites. I think he wrote Mystery Spot and um, Wishing Well. So he certainly has a good handle on on the character. So hopefully that can get it back on track because I do love me some supernatural. And, and Ian, who's in the chat room, said that they remind him of like the Ori on Stargate, how they were kind of yeah villains. I didn't really like the Ori on. <laughs> so the Viathans in a way are kind of like a a variation on the demons and supernatural. Yeah. Kind of less scary. They were. They were. So hopefully we can get a, a good big bad. I like the ideas a little bit. They have been maturing the uh, Winchester brothers over time. Obviously, the actors have grown over eight years as well. So, okay. Enough of that. I'm just really excited. <laughs> <laughs> this is the Supernatural show now. I, I could do an entire show on Supernatural. No problem. Okay. So it hasn't aired yet, but the upcoming superhero series, Arrow, uh, could manage to do something that fellow CW show, Smallville, couldn't do in its entire 10-year run, and that's show Batman on the small screen. Oh, that would be great. Arrow producer Mark uh, Guggenheim, Guggenheim. <laughs> oh, I always have an issue with his last name, uh, <laughs> told this to IGN when asked if Oliver Quinn, a.k.a. Green Arrow, could would have any superhero help in DC Universe. I would say probably. One of the things we want to do is roll the show out at the right pace. For the most part, I think we've taken the philosophy that things are happening sooner rather than later. I always feel like every time we get the note from the network, is this happening too soon, I feel like we're on the right track. I know as a viewer myself, I'm impatient. I want to see stuff. We're not going to make the audience wait to see characters, plot twists, revelations. I think running out of great characters and great moments is a quality problem to have, and I just want to have them. So when pressed on who could possibly guest star, he did say that the end of Christopher Nolan's Dark Knight film trilogy could free up Bruce Wayne for a trip to uh, Arrow's hometown, mm. home turf. <laughs> uh, as you may or may not know, the producers of Smallville did try and fail to bring Batman to their show. I know. <laughs> yeah, I believe that one character that was really weird. That was trying to be. Yeah, there's a character that introduced that some people thought was going to be Batman. I think he was originally supposed to be, and he wasn't, and it was a big letdown. Yeah. But anyway... Uh, they were always stopped by the powers that be because of, of their fear that it could confuse fans of the film series. <laughs> How stupid do they think we are? <laughs> <laughs> but now that the film series is done, they hope to be able to use Batman. Uh, quote, oh, my hope is that we can use him at some point. I think that plagued the Smallville showrunners more than it plagues us because obviously the Dark Knight trilogy is over. They're not available to us yet. My hope is that they'll be available to us at some point. That would be awesome. No question, that would be absolutely awesome. But I don't know. That's above my pay grade. So what do you think? Uh, should Batman pop up in a future episode of Arrow? I think it is. I don't understand where they think it would be confusing. I mean, I I don't think anyone truly believes Christian Bale is Batman and therefore would be just horribly confused that he doesn't show up on this all he is. he is really Batman. <laughs> Santa Claus is real. Oh, Santa Claus don't Batman. Like, ooh, cool. That's how he gets down the chimney. Yeah. But, um, but yeah, and also they they seem to, you can juggle, they've managed to juggle different animated series and different universes within comic books all at the same time. I think they need to stop assuming that we're all too stupid to follow the different things. So, anyway, speaking of Batman, uh, did you wonder what the real origin story of Bane is in The Dark Knight Rises? The film's costume designer told GQ it was filmed, but it didn't make the final cut. One thing that's been consistent about all three of director Christopher Nolan's Batman movies is the lack of a fully detailed origin story for his primary villains, 
Ra's al Ghul, the Joker, and Bane all have backstories ranging from murky to non-existent, and we think we're seeing Bane's origin at one point. Oh, oh, spoiler. Oh, sorry. But it's not necessarily. <laughs> or is it? <laughs> I haven't watched it yet. I don't know. It's been weeks. That's true. I assumed everybody in the world has seen it at this point. <laughs> so anyway, costume designer Linda... Hemmings, Lindy Hemmings, who's worked on all three Nolan Batman films, alluded to a prison sequence in The Dark Knight Rises in which we see how much a younger Bane got the injuries we glimpsed in the movie. Uh, quote, the other thing that you should have seen during that sequence is him being injured in his youth. So one of the fundamental things about his costume is that he has the scar from the back injury. Even if he hasn't got the bulletproof vest on, he still has to wear the waist belt and the braces. And in that scene in the prison where he's learning to fight the same way Batman learned to fight, he's wearing an early version of his waist belt. It's showing support, but it's not the finished one he eventually wears. He's also wearing an early version of his gas mask all glued together. And when it was clarified that the scene didn't make the final cut, she had this to say, well, that's an awful shame, but I suppose you have to cut things. I won't elaborate on it too much because it isn't in the film, but, but there was another section that showed you why he had the mask and where it came from. And Origin for Bane appears to have been filmed and then dropped. So does Bane work better with the secret origin? Secret origin. He's really Joker's brother. <laughs> Don't tell them. <laughs> Oops, my bad. All right. In that Shyamalan is on a mission to find out if there is life after death. He is teaming up with Sci-Fi Channel to work on his first scripted TV project. The director will be joining uh, will be joined behind the scenes by Buffy the Vampire Slayer's Marty Noxon, and uh, with whom he'll co-write and executive produce the show. I like Marty Noxon. I do too. And the show is called Proof. Here's the official synopsis for Proof. After the tragic accident and sudden death of his parents, the son of a billionaire tech genius, offers a large reward for anyone who can find proof of life after death. I kind of wonder where it goes from there. Yeah, I know. I mean, I know he's, he's <laughs> kind of taken his uh, fair share of bad rap lately, but I, I like M. Night Shyamalan, and I, like, I, I, I do like that he's not afraid to delve into things like religion and spirituality and, and the effects of, of things, everything from... Aliens to environmental issues on the human condition. So, yeah, I mean, I, I like the idea that, you know, he's not afraid to go for it. So, you know, even if he falls short, at least he got out there and gave it a shot. I admire that. Yeah. Yeah, I think uh, he's one of my favorite directors. Uh, I think he just got kind of stuck in a gimmick that people were always expecting and he couldn't live up to it, you know, a shock yeah. ending. But as on a technical level, I mean, if you watch his his directing. I mean, even if there are issues with plots and it may not be your thing, you have to admit that he is a, a very uh, technically good director and he manages to put out good quality shots through consistently, I think. So, mm -hmm. so well, before Marvel decided to get into the movie-making game themselves, boy, have they gotten into the game, right? <laughs> uh, they sold rights to different characters to different studios which is why you probably won't see Spider-Man or the X-Men in the Avengers universe anytime soon. Of course not. But now thanks to a new deal, a very possible deal, tied to Fox and Daredevil, one of the biggest Marvel Universe baddies, Galactus, could return to Marvel. Now Fox owns the film rights to Daredevil and also the Fantastic Four. 
But if they don't start filming a sequel or reboot of Daredevil by October 10th, the rights revert back to Marvel. Now, Fox currently is in talks with Joe um, Carnahan to put together a Frank Miller-esque, hardcore 70s thriller version of Daredevil. So Fox doesn't really want to lose those Daredevil rights. So they're wanting to cut a deal with Marvel. But Marvel wants to, you know, wants something in return. And what they want in return is the Marvel Universe villain Galactus and his herald, the Silver Surfer. You may remember them. Uh, or versions of them in the most recent Fantastic yeah. Four movie. Now, sorry, Fantastic Four isn't part of the proposed deal because uh, apparently there's a reboot in the works by Chronicles' Josh Trank to make a, a brand-new Fantastic Four movie. <laughs> so what do you think? You want to see the Avengers take on Galactus after they take on Thanos or Thanos? Why not? Yeah, so uh, well, hopefully so the planet-eater Galactus He's probably the only guy that's more powerful than Thanos. I wonder how you're going <laughs> to show someone eating a planet on film. Uh, it's easy. It's <laughs> and I guess she's pretty much can do anything on film now. I mean, does he, like, take multiple bites? Can he swallow it whole? He usually uses some kind of device that, like, breaks up the Earth. And yeah, but I just don't know what they're going to do. I don't know. The, the Galactus in the Fantastic Four movie was very different. And yeah. Kind of that's what I mean, dull. like, with the creative, like, liberties that... Well, the one, no. they they do a great job. So um, now we haven't heard much about Brian Singer's planned Bla- Battlestar Galactica film since it was announced way way back when. That is until now. Woo-hoo. Singer spoke a little bit about his planned big screen reboot of the sci-fi franchise to IGN. He qu- uh, quote, "I have a script that's in revisions right now, and it's very cool." Brian Singer said about the John Orloff's script, "It will exist, I think." quite well between the Glenn Larson and Ron Moore universes. But that's all I want to say about it. Uh, he also said, but it's evolving quite well and quite recently. I've been developing this for a while, and I hope to do it. I hope to do it. It just kind of ends right there. <laughs> she likes to get to the point. Yes. Well, I don't know. I don't know how I feel about Big Screen Ballastar Galactica so soon after Ron Moore's film. I would be more excited about it being uh, a continuation of the Ron Moore I don't know how you would continue it, though. I don't know either. <laughs> but I just really liked it. So, I don't know. Okay, well, uh, speaking of Marvel, how about X-Men First Class, the sequel? I know we really enjoyed that movie. Uh, now, that was very good. Now, Brian Singer also announced last week the follow-up to to uh, last year's First Class. It's going to be called X-Men Days of Future Past. Comic book fans may recognize the title from an iconic story arc that was by the same name, which alternates between present and future, where the X-Men go to overturn Brotherhood of Evil Mutants, and now mutants are forced to live in, in camps, and it's up to the present-day X-Men to prevent this timeline from occurring. Basically, this is what Sainer said. I can say it's being written right now, and it will start shooting in a few months. It's going to be very ambitious. It's called Days of Future Past, and it deals with aspects of that comic, but also some very new things. I just don't want to uh, give any of it away. Matthew Vaughn will be directing, and I'm totally excited about it. Now, of course, just because it uses the title of that story arc doesn't mean it's going to be exactly right. like it. So, but boy, does it open up possibilities. I, I don't know. Oh, Wolverine. Let's put Wolverine back in there. You know, I, I, I did not have high hopes for X-Men First Class before we saw it, but I was just blown away by it. I really thought it was absolutely fantastic, well-directed, well-acted, well-cast, well-written. It was... um. It, it, I think I think that they really could have have have, have uh, promoted it more heavily than they did. Yeah, I mean the third X Men movie kind of wasn't so great. No, uh, no, this, this blew that one out. Of so life. I really wasn't expecting a whole lot, but 
but boy, it was really great. It was a good time time uh, period mm-hmm. film and yeah. All right. Well, enough about us. Enough news. Yeah. Who cares what we think about anything? <laughs> we got two interviews to get through, so let's get through the first one. So now it's time for our first interview. So here's an excerpt from an uh, interview with Alpha's newest cast member, Aaron Way. It was a fun little chat, and here we go. Ben thinks he's a tough guy. Trust me, short Zach. He is. He's going to get his ass kicked. All right. The problem, old man. Some of the bitches all over the place. I can't hit them. You see that dude? He messes with your eyes. Like a camera flash going off in your face. Makes you feel double and triple. Yeah. How does he do that? He's got a special talent. All the fighters do. They're out there. I play the character of Kat. Um, and uh, she uh, she meets um, Harkin at, um, I guess Harkin and Hicks both at um, an underground alpha fight club. Um, and um, her special ability is that she can uh, basically learn any skill instant- instantly. So that includes knowledge and muscle memory. Um, it, she can, it's essentially kind of like she can just download it almost instantly. And um, uh, the, the only downside is that um, she has a bit of a memory problem. So uh, after about a month or so, she starts losing losing memories of the past. So um, while she retains her memory, she can't remember how she learned them or who she knows or where she came from, um, which, you know, is a little problematic. She's a very, very strong female character, um, which I, I not only enjoy watching, but I enjoy playing. Um, you know, she's, she can fight. Um, she's tough. And I think that's a really cool, it's a cool thing that sci-fi tends to do for, for females in general, um, is that they tend to have really strong, uh, female characters. So that, that intrigued me. And then also just the fact that I, I, um, would be learning a new skill on a weekly basis was kind of cool, you know, and I basically would have a new ability each on a very regular basis, which, um, which I just found, I was like, well, I'm never going to get bored with this girl. I was wondering if you're a fan of sci-fi, and how does acting in a sci-fi show like Alphas differ from the more, quote-unquote, normal shows like Detroit 187, a private practice that you've acted in? Um, I'm a huge fan of sci-fi. Um, never done a sci-fi um, show or movie before, so it was, it was kind of a surreal experience. Um, but I'm a huge uh I mean, you can kind of name name the sci-fi shows, and I'm I'm a huge sucker for them. So, so that was kind of awesome. That um, uh, I had to pinch myself on a couple occasions that I was going to, um, you know, be a part of that genre. Finally, um, it was really cool. It was kind of go without saying. I'm I'm so cliche, but I'm a huge Buffy and Firefly and Dollhouse and so Josh Whedon for for, for sure. Um, I basically, any show that he does, I'm, I'm, I don't even doubt that I'm going to like it because I just know that I will. While I love the other genres that I've been a, a part of, um, Private Practice and Detroit 187 there, it, I mean, it's, it's a little bit, I wouldn't say it's like comparing apples and oranges because there is definitely the procedural element a little bit in there with Alphas, which makes Alphas a little different in that we are trying to solve, um, 
not necessarily crimes, but, you know, in, we're trying to figure out what's behind incidents that are unexplained. So in that way, it's a little bit like a crime drama, like Detroit 187, but um, the world of sci-fi is so much bigger, and the possibilities that, of what can happen and and what people are capable of is because it's sci-fi, um, it doesn't have to be based in quote-unquote reality. So that, to me, is what's so exciting, is that you, you're, the imagination and the scope of what can occur is huge. And... Um, and because of that, it really is an exciting genre to be in. And um, so you kind of look forward to getting that script and being like, okay, what what else are they going to stumble upon this week? And, um, you know, and, and what is their ability going to be? Because you know it's probably going to be something that you've never even thought of. And, um, and so that to me is what's so exciting about this genre and makes my job really fun and and never boring and interesting each week. Okay. And uh, how did it feel like being the new person in this cast? You know, they're, they're coming in the very uh, beginning of season two. Did they welcome you quite well? Was it easy to fit in? Oh, they're so mean. No, <laughs> <laughs> no they were great. They were, they were just, I mean, it could be, literally it could be like the freshman at high school that gets picked on and, they had no obligation necessarily to treat me nicely. Um, and they were all just bent over backwards to make me feel welcome. And by the end of that first um, uh, first episode, I just, uh, I felt like I was part of a huge family. And I, you know, I never, I think they all, um, they all had their own perspective on the exciting thing that Kat was going to bring to the team dynamic. And, um, and, uh, so, you know, no, I haven't, I've been very blessed on both shows that I've worked, worked on, um, for a period of time, Detroit 187 and this one to be surrounded by a group of actors that get along really well and that are, that, um, have that kind of, um, a collaborative team mentality, um, towards doing the show. So it's a team, it's a team of people that, want to get along, want to make the show good, and um, and uh, so, no, I felt nothing but um, goodwill and, um, and uh, you know, just this warmth when I came on board. It was it was a big relief because there was a lot to um, take on my first episode, so had I been intimidated by the cast members, it would have been an extra kind of fear <laughs> to kind of deal with, but they just made me feel like, um, super, super comfortable, which is nice. Okay. I was curious um, how you auditioned for this character because your character is supposed to have all these different skills. Was it just um, just dialogue and and seeing about your personality, or did they throw any kind of curveballs at you to, to test, like, how quickly you can learn physical skills? Mm. Um, no, they did not, thank God, test me on any kind of physical skills. Uh, in the audition, um, basically description for description of the character, it did have um, as uh, it said. Um, well, I think it was martial arts background a plus, but uh, they clearly did not make that a necessity because I don't have any martial arts <laughs> background. Um, I have dance background, which probably helps a little bit because I'm not completely physically retarded. Um, so I'm, a, you know, I'm at least um, coordinated. Mm -hmm. But no, that was not. That was not um, in the audition process at all. It was all dialogue, 
and um, and uh, over a series of I think four auditions total. Uh, I auditioned for the part four times, um, and uh, and then once I got it, then they were like, oh, and P.S. Your first episode, you need to be an expert at kickboxing. And I was like, awesome. <laughs> <laughs> so at that point, it was like, boy, we hope you're a quick learner because here you go. And I had about a week. Uh, they they moved me here to Toronto, and then I had about a week of training um, before starting on uh starting on my first episode. So, um, yeah, no, they, um, they just trusted that I would be able to be a quick study, which is a lot of pressure. I'm not going <laughs> to lie to you. Um, but, uh, but luckily it turned out okay. And I think it, it all looks okay and good in the episode. So that's, that's good. good. So, so you think your ballerina background helps you? Cause, cause we talked about summer earlier and she's got the same kind of background and she, of course, did a fantastic job in Firefly and Serenity, especially Serenity. Were you able to use yeah. that training, like, to, to develop the beats, like, of, of dancing to the fight? Yeah. Yeah, well, I mean, in the sense that it, it's it's a little twofold. One, it's completely counterintuitive to how a dancer moves and holds their body. So um, that's the first thing that I found is, like, the, the center of uh, balances and how a a boxer holds their body is pretty much polar opposite of a, of a dancer. However, what did come in handy was, um, you know, I was a coordination factor. The fact that I'm, I'm relatively coordinated with my body and, and relatively flexible still, which helps with the kicking and things of that sort. Um, and then also, you know, when you do a show like this, when you do fight scenes, um, they're choreographed. And, and you usually have about a, not very long. They usually teach you the choreography for the fight, maybe the day before, often the same day. And um, so um, the ability to uh, learn choreography very quickly is is really the key, um, actually, that I think came in most handy. Is um, I'm used to learning a dance, you know, learning dance is learning a dance really fast. Um, and so that's basically what you have to do um, when you come on set and have to fight. Um, so uh, that's really, I think, where it really came into handy. Otherwise, it was pretty much a retraining of my body of, like, how to hold myself and not look like a sissy. Dancers <laughs> <laughs> don't look like fighters. <laughs> so I had to kind of retrain myself not to hold myself like a ballerina. So, so yeah, so it did come in handy a little bit. Um, for sure, in the in the important areas, I guess. Okay. Well, I look forward to seeing it. Great, thank you. And thank you to Aaron Way for agreeing to the interview. And you can check out Elsa's every Monday on the Sci Fi Channel. Yeah, and Ian in the chat room actually uh, pointed us some news that we just, well, I guess, just happened almost a few hours ago. Mm-hmm. That uh, Joss Whedon, it's been announced that uh, Joss Whedon is developing a, a live action Marvel TV series for ABC. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's going to be tied into the Avengers. So, Speaking of the devil, Joss Whedon, <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> and we love him. <laughs> so uh, I'm looking forward to that. 
there's no word yet on how it ties, except there'll be different characters. Uh, obviously, they're not going to get some of those movie actors to appear. No, um, but if you've got Joss Whedon, that's really all you need. <laughs> and you have a tie-in on the the DVD, so it's it's um, makes sense that they might do a tie-in for the for a TV series. They might be testing out some characters as well and seeing how that works with audiences. Would be my guess. And maybe wouldn't be a bad idea. All right. Well, now let's move on to our next interview. Yes. This one's with the New York Times bestselling author Ari Salvatore. Charon's claw, legendary weapon, sentient sword. It has dominated a once great city and enslaved a once legendary assassin. But can it stop the equally legendary Dritz Doerden? Well, I'm Bob Salvatore, Ari Salvatore, and uh, last month marked a big milestone for me because 25 years ago, uh, last month, July of 1987, I was um, I got my first professional writing contract. Um, I had been tasked with writing the second book in TSR's Forgotten Realms, um, now Wizards of the Coast, but then it was TSR. And so I started writing, and during that I created a character by the name of Dritz Dewarden, a dark elf who has caught on, and here I am a quarter century later, still writing about the guy. I've done many other books besides, including a couple of Star Wars books, and my World of Demon Wars, which I love dearly. Eleven books in that world and counting. So it's been a heck of a ride. I think I've got about 53 books published now, and many more to come, I hope. But what started you down the path of uh, fantasy writing? Well, it's a funny thing because, you know, I got to college and I wasn't much of a writer or a reader. When I was younger, I, I used to read and write all the time, but school kind of beat the interest out of me. <laughs> and by the time I got to college, I was a math major. Oh, well, wow. I was actually undeclared, but everything was math. I was going for math or computer science. And then we had a, um, for Christmas, my freshman year in college, this was 1977, my sister gave me a copy of Tolkien's work. Two months later, we had this incredible snowstorm up here in New England, the blizzard of 78. So here I was 19 years, just turned 19 years old and trapped in my mom's house for a week because there were no roads. You, you could not leave the house. And, uh, you know, I, I thought, oh, joy, what am I going to do? And I actually picked up those books and read them and I went away from that house on this magical journey to Middle Earth with a hobbit named Bilbo. It was incredible. Um, I read those books several times that week, and my love of reading and writing came back. So I went back to school, changed my major, so that all of my electives would be um, literature courses or creative writing courses. And then, but I kept, I, I had this really warm place in my heart for fantasy because of that Tolkien experience and just, just the escapism. I loved it so much. So I read every fantasy book I could find, and there weren't that many at that time that you could find. There was no internet in 1977-78. But I read Terry Brooks and Stephen Donaldson and Ian McCaffrey and Michael Moorcock and Fritz Leiber. I was pretty much out at that point. And so I didn't have anything else to read. I wrote one. I wrote my own book in 1983-84, around there. And when I finished writing it, it was a book called Echoes of the Fourth Magic. I wasn't planning on being published. I just sent it out, um, got some horrible rejection letters, and that just made me mad. So I went back to work and rewrote it and rewrote it. And that book actually got me the audition in 1987 to write The Crystal Shard. Wow. Now, you're most famous for your character. You know, um, How do you pronounce his name, his full name? 
It depends what day you ask me. I never <laughs> I never really clarify that. Sometimes I say dritz, other times I say drizzit, and the reason is because I think that's like the coolest marketing twist ever. <laughs> I picture two kids in a high school hallway. It's dritz, it's drizzit, it's dritz, it's drizzit. Third kid comes over and says, what the hell are you talking about? And they go, you never read these? And I win. <laughs> so we'll call them dritz for this one. <laughs> Very clever, yeah. Well, now that character takes place in the the campaign setting of Forgotten Realms from the Dungeon yep. Dragons games. Did you were you familiar with Forgotten Realms before you you wrote that character? Did you used to play Forgotten Realms before you wrote that? character? No, um, I was familiar with Dungeons and Dragons very much so because this was like I said, 1987, and I had started playing D and D in 1980, 81 around there when the first edition um, Player's Handbook came out and first edition. Dungeon Master's Guide, the first hardcover books, and that's when I started playing. But what happened was I had sent my book in, the manuscript for Echoes of the Fourth Magic, and the editor liked it but couldn't publish it because she said they only had room on their schedule for Forgotten Realms books, and could I make that book a Forgotten Realms book? And so I said, well, what are the Forgotten Realms? Because they weren't out yet. So the only people who knew about the realms were the people who worked at TSR. Well, we couldn't set that book in the realms, so they gave me a crash course and you know, I auditioned and won the audition to do the second book, The Crystal Shard. Cool. It, was it a challenge, and has it been a challenge, uh, writing stories taking place in Forgotten Realms in a shared world? You know, is it tough to keep track of where everything's at and what's going on? Oh, it's impossible to keep track, so I don't even try. <laughs> I, I keep track of that which is around what I'm doing, and I spend a lot of my time hiding in different corners of the world. But, you know, as much of a challenge as as it's been, it's more of a pleasure because when shared world is working right, you get to stand on the shoulders of giants like Gary Gygax and Dave Arneson and Ed Greenwood, um, you know, and the work that's come before. So, uh, you know, for me, the inspiration and the side stories that have cropped up because it is a shared world have helped me make the books thicker and richer and, and fuller than just coming up with the the entire setting, plot, and everything else by myself in a lot of ways, when it works right. When it works wrong, then we have contradictions that nobody was aware of till after all the products are out. Mm-hmm. Um, we try to keep that at a minimum, and that really depends on on how well the people at Wizards of the Coast can uh, communicate with all of the different authors, with all of the different game designers, the freelancers, the in-house people. It's um, That's a tough gig. Working as a coordinator for something like Forgotten Realms would be one of the toughest jobs I could imagine. Mm-hmm. Do you know how many books are being made every year for Forgotten Realms in general? Oh, uh, the, numbers, the numbers gone all over the place. At one point, they were doing more than one a month, like two, three books a month, I think, at one point. Mm. Or some crazy amount, but then other times it's slowed down where they're only doing you know six or eight a year. But it's not just the books, the game products. I mean, you have modules and game accessories and source books and all the rest of it. And now you've got online material as well with you know Dungeons and Dragons Online and the new Neverwinter game coming out and the previous two Neverwinter games and Demonstone from Atari that came out a few years ago. So there's a lot of different parts, moving parts, and it's a big job for everybody to try to keep track. Mm-hmm. Now, your main character, your most popular for Dritz, um, he's a dark elf, which is very 
counterintuitive what you would expect for a heroic character or, uh, race to be in uh, in D and D or Forgotten Realms. Uh, Why did you choose a dark elf? Um, I didn't. He chose me. It was off the top of my head. I, I needed. I was under duress on the phone with the editor while I was working as a financial analyst at my day job, and she needed a sidekick for Wolfgar. And off the top of my head, I I don't know why, because I'd never played one in the game. We don't even have them in my game, other than as really cool monsters. But I said a, a black elf. They were called black elves back in the 80s. And, um, you know, she, I had to talk her into letting me do it. She said, go ahead. And it was because it was just a sidekick character. And then once I started writing the book, he just kind of took over. Um, it, believe me, no one was more surprised than I was to find a dark elf in my books. <laughs> Well, well, I'm you, glad that happened, though. For people who may not be familiar with this character, can you tell us a little bit about the character? Sure. I, I think he's the classic romantic hero, and I think one of the reasons he resonates so well, particularly with younger readers, teenagers, is because everybody feels like they're misunderstood, and everybody feels like the outcast at some point in their life. And so here he is, born in this dark elf city, which, by the way, was based on Mario Puzo's work, um, The Godfather. When I wrote Menzo Berenzana, I, I based it on... The basic, the basic societal structures I used as a model, The Godfather by Mario Puzo. So he's in this world that's really tough and, and you know, that he just can't stomach. And his, mor his internal moral code is just screaming at him that this is wrong. And so, you know, he, he does some pretty heroic things to, to be able to escape that society and strike out on his own, even though he thinks it's going to be the end of him. He thinks he'll be, you know, he won't survive for long without that city around him, and he think he knows he'll never be really accepted in other places, or believes that anyway. And it's just his journey that we've gone through for these 25 years, where where he's asking himself all the big questions and trying to do what's right, sometimes against tremendous odds. Now, sometimes people talk about that character and they say that you're making um, messages against racial prejudice with the character. Um, yeah, absolutely. I'm trying to do things like that. I mean, you try to make your books relevant. Mm -hmm. And to me, like the stupidest thing in the world is, is racism. I mean, it, I, I, yeah, I'm a racist because I'm a human and I have this affinity toward people. You know, the, the idea that there's a difference between an Italian, a Frenchman, a, a person from Africa, a person from Alaska, that there's some, I don't know, it just rings as stupid to me. But the funny thing is, I mean, that's one of the paradoxes, right, of writing in fantasy, because in fantasy, there is racism, because orcs are evil, or most orcs are anyway. So that's a difficult line to walk sometimes in the fantasy genre. But I wanted to explore it, and I wanted to ask questions. And, you know, we've seen parts, of, you know, times where the hero himself, when Dritz himself, realized that he was being a racist, and had to kind of slap himself upside the head and say, knock it off. I mean, at one point... He had made a vow where he would never kill another drow elf. Mm -hmm. But in the heat of battle, he's killing dwarves and elves and humans and all the rest. So what's so special about a drow elf? And, you know, that, it was racism. Yeah. And so, yeah, it's a fun thing to explore in this safer setting of fantasy because it's a difficult subject. It's an important subject. So... You know, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna shy from it. When when themes like that crop up in the books, I'm never gonna shy from them, because if I did, then what's the point of it all? Mm -hmm. I mean, I'm writing these books to ask myself the big questions of the world, and the only way I'm gonna find the answers is if I do that honestly. Yeah, and I mean, fantasy, especially role playing game fantasy, 
<laughs> I think unintentionally has been sort of racist till maybe the last 10 or 15 years or so because you never could play. There's there's always the player races and then there's the monster races like the orcs, the, the dark elves, and uh, only recently in role-playing games have you been able to play the other characters. And I don't even know if could you even play a dark elf back then in the game <laughs> when you first. Um, I think the first time they mentioned it was when the Fiend Folio came out. They said, you know, here's some ways, and I'm I'm not sure if that predated or postdated the Crystal Shot. It was right around that time. But yeah, we never had any in our group. Now, the main book we're talking about, um, it's the third book in the Neverwinter Saga. So. What what is Neverwinter and what what's the Neverwinter saga about? Um, Neverwinter is a city and region on the Sword Coast of the Forgotten Realms, and it's been featured in two computer games with a third one coming. The saga is really the story I wanted to tell on the side would have been the same story whether or not Neverwinter was involved, um, because it's really the story of. I have this dark elf character, and for most of his life, he was surrounded by people who are a lot like him. You know, people of similar moral codes and values, people who would take an arrow for him without thinking twice about it. And now, all of a sudden, as we've gone through the transition of the last series, he's surrounded by people who would probably pull him in front of an arrow aimed for them. <laughs> And so the whole core of this series has been, you know, it's like your friend who finds and falls in with the wrong crowd. And then you got to ask, you know, the question that you want answered when that happens is, is he going to be able to bring this person or these people up to his level, or are they going to drag him down to theirs? And that's what this whole series has been about at its core, where I wanted to find that answer, and I didn't know the answer going in for this particular group of people. And the other part of the series is Neverwinter, the setting itself, where I was asked if I was going to be in that area, and since I was, would I be okay with kind of setting the stage for the next computer game that would be set in that area, which basically means blowing the place up. <laughs> and, of course, I'm okay with that. That's the fun part of being a writer. Yeah. <laughs> so I blew the place up. Now, Charon's... Claw is the name of the third book, and I know it has something to do with a sword or his sword. Uh, can you explain that a little more? Yeah, um, one of the fun things about fantasy is having powerful weapons or artifacts, and Karen's Claw is, is a, an ancient Netherese sword. The Netherese are a race of beings who, who they take great pride in their magical artifacts and swords and weapons of all types. And But this came into the hands of one of my heroes. Uh, enemies or acquaintances at this point. I don't think I'd call them enemies anymore, or maybe they are. We'll see. <laughs> um, having these types of artifacts in, book, in fantasy is always a pleasure because, you know, a, a typically a such a powerful sentient weapon can really mess with someone's head. That can just make the plot go all around in circles. Right. So there's a lot of that in there, and and what. What they find out in this book is that, you know, it starts out as a revenge quest. There's a really bad guy, and it leads them to understand that there's a really bad thing going on around them that's going to be very hard to stop, and that involves the sword. So there it is. Hmm. Okay. Now, is this the last book in the Neverwinter Saga, or is there going to be more? 
Originally it was, but I already wrote and I already finished actually the next book, which is coming out next March, called The Last Threshold. And it fits so well with this storyline and really shows the surprising conclusions of the internal battles and the struggle that we decided to include that as well as the fourth book of the, of the saga. Uh, I'm also a writer, uh, but mostly screenplays, and um, so I'm always curious about the different writers, their approaches to writing. Uh, how, how do you kind of plan out your books? Do you do a kind of a detailed outline? Do you just have a rough idea? How do you usually approach them before you I start? I do an outline. It's, it's not extensive. It's usually two to seven or eight pages, and then I start writing, and I pretty much throw it away <laughs> because... <laughs> The characters take over. The characters start telling me what's coming next. And I find myself a lot of times uh, writing books the same way other people read books, where sometimes I don't even know what's going to happen on the next page. And honestly, that's what makes it fun for me. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, I let the characters pretty much tell me where we're going. Cool. I just wanted to ask this question because I, re- I read this book, and, and, of course, it was kind of shocking in a way. Uh, Vector Prime for Star Wars, yeah. New Jedi. Order, mm-hmm. and that's caused a little controversy because uh, you know you killed off Chewbacca, and uh, yeah. hopefully I didn't spoil anything. But <laughs> it's been a few years. Uh, yeah, they gotta know by now. Any <laughs> Star Wars fans don't know that by now. That's their fault. Yeah. <laughs> well, uh, how did that come about, uh, and uh, and how do you feel about about that turn? Well, I was working for Del Rey Books at the time, and writing my Demon Wars books, and Del Rey got in this huge bidding war with Bantam. Was it Bantam? I think it was Bantam. Where Del Rey won the rights to do the Star Wars adult fiction. And this was a really big deal because the rights have been tied up for a lot of years. But this is also right when they were announcing the three new movies. Mm-hmm. And I was, you know, I was one of Del Rey's authors and they called me and they needed a book done fast and they wanted me to be the one to write it. And was I interested? So, you know, Del Rey had treated me really well by bringing me in after I had left TSR in the mid-90s and, and the big fallout, and they were really letting me letting me write the Demon Wars series, which I had always wanted to do, I was able to arrange it so that I would find time in my schedule. I had to talk to them, and I was back with Wizards of the Coast at this point, just to make sure they would they would delay my deadlines to let me do it, and Wizards accommodated me. I said, sure. So they told me the story arc that they were trying to do in the New Jedi Order, just the overall story arc, and I was supposed to, you know, they showed me A to Z, and I was supposed to get them from A to B. So I said, I went out and I wrote up an outline. I, I accepted the contract. I got the check, the advance check, put it in the bank, uh, wrote up the outline, sent it in, and it was we were on a three-way call with Lucasfilm, Del Rey, and myself. And they said, this is really great. This is just what we want. But didn't we tell you you have to kill Chewbacca? And I was, I won't tell you what I said next because it was very impolite. But I I argued, didn't want to do it, Um, finally was convinced um, that they were doing it for the right reasons, and it really did come from on high. I mean, this had gotten the approval at the very highest level, if you can figure out who that is. (laughs) And so I agreed, and I did it, and, you know, the death threats ensued, and the really visceral hatred from some people it was it was more than I could have imagined. And how do I feel about it? You know, it's it's probably the one thing I've done as a writer that I regret. I, I don't know that they should have done it with that character. Um, but, you know, the Star Wars community is torn over that half the people love it, half the people hate it, or some percentage therein. Um, 
But, you know, when I look back at it, it's like I, I just don't know that they should have gone there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's tough to kill off one of those iconic characters like that. Let's talk about Demon War Saga a little bit, if you don't mind. Sure. How's that differ from, from Forgotten Realms and, and your other books? Well, the biggest difference is that it's my world. So if I want to blow something up, I'll blow it up. If I want to kill off characters, well, I can kill off characters in the realms too, as long as they're my characters. But in Demon Wars, I'm a little more bloodthirsty. I don't get too attached to anyone. Um, but it's a different... The Demon Wars world is really centers around the, uh, the Abelican Church and magic gemstones that they control. And the moral center of the world is the Church, and it's also the immoral center of the world. And that's the Demon War story in, de- in defining this world uh, details a schism in the church, much like what the Catholic Church went through in our own world, except in our world it was about wealth. You had the Franciscans and the Benedictines you know, fighting over whether or not they should hoard the money and build these grand cathedrals or whether they should live as peasants. You know, uh, And Demon War, same thing is going on, but with gemstones, where you have half the faction saying that the gemstones are the gifts of God, you know, where the... We're the word of God, so we are the you know the the ones who should have all the gemstones. And these gemstones are they're the source of almost all the magic in the world. And then you have another faction that's coming to the conclusion: Well, wait a minute, if this one particular mineral or gemstone stone can heal disease, cure disease, or heal wounds, shouldn't we have it out at every town that we can get it out to, just to help alleviate suffering? Shouldn't we be sharing this kind of power? And that's really the backdrop for, you know, for the world that is portrayed through an adventure story of, of three characters. And this seven-book series of Demon Wars was designed to create the world with, with that central conflict in mind. And then after I was done that, my goal was to go back there, which I have, and do more personal stories set in that world. So I went back and I wrote The Highwayman and the Saga of the First King. And The Highwayman just came out on graphic audio, by the way. And graphic audio is amazing. It's, they call it a movie in your mind, and it, and it really is. So if anyone's interested in that and you like audio books, I highly recommend it. Hmm. Um, but So I go back and I, I started doing The Highwayman, which takes place hundreds of years before Demon Wars, but shows you a lot of things that are relevant to the world you'll read about when you do when you read The Demon Awakens and the and the six books after that. It's different than the realms in that it's more human centered than the realms. You know, humans are one of many races in the realms that are prominent. In Demon Wars the humans are much more dominant. Uh the cultures are more human like. Magic is is less accessible and more dependent upon the gemstones which have their own set of rules and how they work and who can access them and how they can access them. And I think it's a little I think it's a little more tougher in terms of if you like characters they're going they could get killed. Uh-huh. Um I'm a little I'm a little more heartless in Demon Wars. <laughs> I say that and yet I think that the most compassionate and easily the best book I've ever written in my life is Mortalis, which is the fourth book in this series that bridges the two trilogies. Just out of curiosity, fantasy is getting much bigger now with the Game of Thrones, bigger in TV movies because of Game of Thrones and Lord of the Rings. Um, and Harry Potter. And Harry Potter, yes. And uh, if they decided to make a Forgotten Realms TV show or movie or something like that, or maybe a movie, uh, what story or story arc that you wrote do you think would make a good movie? In the realms, um, 
You know, I, I'd love to see Homeland because it would be something so different. Uh, the Crystal Shard, you know, I, I, all the Dritz books are, are episodic. I think you can pick up almost any of the Dritz books and start the series with it, which was by design. I mean, I wrote them more along the lines of um, Sherlock Holmes or James Bond than Wheel of Time or A Song of Ice and Fire. Mm-hmm. So I think you could really jump in and do just about any of the books. Homeland is still my, one of my favorites, probably my favorite Dritz book and still one of my favorites I've ever done. And bringing that society to the screen, you know, you could have such fun with the lighting that you would use. and It just might be... Um, it just might be something that people haven't seen before. Mm-hmm. So I'd like that. What's the Homeland story about? That's the origination story for Dritz. It's it's where about his dark the Dark Elf City and him being born and growing up in the Dark Elf City. Mm-hmm. And, that, and the Hobbit's gonna have three movies now. What do you think about that? Oh, <laughs> yeah, that's my favorite book. Uh, the Hobbit's life. my favorite book of all time. It's the book that changed my life. I, I can I I loved what Peter Jackson did with the first three. Do you installments. Think, do you think they might be going overkill with three movies, or do you think that's you think that'll work? They might be. I don't know. Um, you know, I, when I look at the first trilogy, did the Fellowship of the Ring was my favorite of the three. It had the charm of Tolkien really burned into it. The beginning scenes in the Shire were just amazing. The way he used light in that opening scene, the forest, he just turned the filter up a little bit. I, I like the second one less. And the third one less than that, even though I enjoy them all. And it was because they went more towards CG and, bl- and battles and blowing things up, which is cool. And you needed that. But it, I think I got a little too heavy on the CG as the series went along. That's my only criticism. I think Peter Jackson did a magnificent job. Oh, that, and you didn't have Glorfindel in it. You let Arwen have Glorfindel's role, and that bothered me because I love Glorfindel. Mm-hmm. Um, in The Hobbit, you know, I don't know what they're going to do to get three movies out of that. Um if they use three movies to tell more of that book, I'm going to love it. If they go into these side stories, like if we get one movie that's all about Tom Bombadil or something, I'm probably not going to like it as much. <laughs> I think you could get nine hours or eight and a half hours or eight hours, whatever it turns out to be, of movie out of The Hobbit. Mm-hmm. You know, with a logical break at Rivendell and another logical break maybe in right before they go into the... Um, right when they first cross the Misty Mountains and come upon Bjorn and all of that. So I think you could get three movies out of it. And if they do it that way and they're truer to the book, I'm going to love every minute of it. Uh, how long does it take you to write a book? Depends. I mean, the first Demon Wars book, I spent six months building the world before I ever started writing the book. And then I think it took me probably eight months to write the book. So, you know, that, that one alone was well over a year. But uh, a Dark Elf book at this point, where, you know, I know the characters very well, then I know who they are, I know their motivations, you know, almost all of them, and I'm only going to introduce a few new ones in each book. I can do one of those in probably four to six months. Hmm. Probably six. Great. Is there anything else you'd like to add about your, your newest book or anything coming up? Yeah, the new book comes out August 7th, and again, the next one in the series will be in March. Um, that's called The Last Threshold. And also in October, the three books that I wrote with my son, Gino, The Stone of Tomorrow, is coming out in a uh, an omnibus, so you can get all three in one. And uh, after that, we're rolling along. I'm, I'm already well into the next book beyond The Last Threshold. Wow. So the road continues. <laughs> Are you going to be a Gen Con this year? 
I will be at Gen Con and Dragon Con this year. Are you? I'm going to be at Gen... And Space City Con in Houston and... What's it called? Halcon, or I'll be in Halifax in at a convention in October. Plus, I've got a book tour coming up and um, real soon, and so I'm going to be out on the West Coast and down in Texas. Going to be back in Kentucky and Ohio, and ending up at Gen Con. Oh, great! I'll be at Gen Con, so if I, I'll have to stop by and say hi. <laughs> Sounds good. All right. Well, it's been a pleasure speaking with you. Have a good day. Take care. Thanks to R.A. Salvatore for agreeing to the interview and his newest book, Charon's Claw. Charon's Claw hits bookshelves today. So that's it for our eighth episode of Genretainment. But before we go, we just wanted to let you know about our web series, Reality on Demand. You can find it at realityondemandseries.com. So that's it for today, folks. And join us next time on Tuesday at 4 p.m. Pacific, 6 p.m. Central. Adios, Adios.